Romans 2, 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them, or even excuse them, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you so much for um, the opportunity to gather here together this morning. I just pray that um, you would be with us um, through the teaching, that uh, you would keep us free from distraction, uh, be at work in our hearts, Lord, and um, just continue to um, grow us um, in knowledge and in love of you, God, and um, just work in our hearts because only you can. Uh, we can't change ourselves, and we just love you so much, um, and we're thankful for all that um, you've done for us and all that you're doing. Amen. Amen. Good morning. You guys can have a seat. Thank you guys for being here this morning. I know that I was joking with one guy when he walked in that there was probably some weeping and gnashing of teeth yesterday afternoon. So I know some people's idols disappointed them yesterday afternoon. My, and, I, and the reason I know that is because my own kid has been indoctrinated by you guys. Um, and so after the game, Jackie and I are sitting on the couch and, you know, I, like, barely even paid attention to the game. And I look over, and he's just weeping. Yeah. And so thank you guys for passing your idol to my child. Um, and I looked at him and said, buddy, who's dad's favorite football team? He's like, the Redskins. I said, yep. Are the Redskins good? No. Okay. Do I cry every time they lose? No. And I was like, because I'd be crying a lot, wouldn't I? You're like, yeah. I said, don't, don't let a football team rob your joy, buddy. You've got way too many good things going on in your life to, to, to allow um, a football team to rob your joy. But, uh, so, but we very much experienced probably some of the same pain and heartache you guys were experiencing yesterday afternoon if you were at the game. For those of you guys that have no idea what I'm talking about, um, there's this big stadium over on the campus that seats about 92,000 people, I think, and it was pretty full yesterday. So... Uh, but I hope you guys enjoyed the homecoming festivities. If you're in here visiting, I saw some faces of, of people that have graduated and are just back visiting this weekend, so it's good to see you guys. Um, if this is your first time at Aletheia, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, appreciate you guys being here to worship with us uh, this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up. We're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 2 uh, this morning. Uh, we started a, about a month and a half ago uh, a study in, in the book of Romans, and uh, we'll probably be... In, in Romans sometime probably through the summer, um, depending on, on, on how things kind of shake out. Um, but we're going to continue in, in, in chapter 2 uh, this morning, um, really building off of what, what we talked about last week. And I said a couple weeks ago, uh, as we kind of began this journey through Paul's letter to the Romans, that um, when we are sharing the gospel or when we're, when we're talking about Christianity with somebody or when we're, we're in discussion with somebody about kind of our, our beliefs and, our, and our, the, the tenets of the faith, um, I, I asked you guys and I posed a question to you guys here, like where, where do you tend to start when you're trying to explain the faith to somebody? 
and uh, it, it, it kind of came out, and it's, it's pretty obvious that, that most of us want to start with this, this idea of explaining God's love for the world that we want to explain the good news of who Jesus is and, and why that's important and, and, and what he's done and that God loves us and that he forgives us and if you simply just trust in Jesus that God loves you and, and forgives you. And, and, and while that's good and important and we need to very much so be explaining, right, biblically the good news of what Christ has done, right, I said that that is not where Paul starts. That in Romans chapter 1, if you look at verses 16 and 17, we've kind of said that those two verses are the, the thesis of Paul's letter to the Romans. And what he says in those two verses is that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation, both to the Jews and the Greeks. And so his, his point as he's writing this letter to the church at Rome is, hey, look, I, I, I'm not ashamed of the ministry I've been called to. I'm not ashamed of what God has called me to do because the gospel is the power of God. And so, and so when I say that word gospel, for any of us that have spent any amount of time in church over the years, we're gonna immediately run to the cross and run to what Christ accomplished, right? And so that would be where most of us kind of expect Paul to start as he starts giving this defense of the good news, as he starts giving this defense of the gospel. But immediately after verse 17, what you see is that Paul actually moves into talking about some bad news, right? He starts talking about how mankind is sinful and separated from God and that mankind has in many ways committed what we might call cosmic treason against the God of the universe and is therefore separated from him because of that sinfulness. And he anticipates a bunch of objections and questions that he's gonna get from people. And so he starts with those that aren't Jewish, that those that did not grow up in the synagogue and that would not know the God of the Bible and would not know. And he, he says that God is still reserving his judgment and wrath on those that have grown, grown up outside of the religious tradition of the Jews because God has revealed himself to them through creation. That creation gives more than sufficient evidence that God has created the universe and therefore that we should look to worship and honor him. And so that's kind of the point he makes. And then he, he moves on once you get to Romans chapter 2 is he's going to start transitioning away from non, the, the non-religious, non-Jewish audience to a more traditionally religious audience that Paul often confronts. He's going to say, hey, look, just because I've said beforehand that Gentiles, non-Jews, are guilty of sin and rebellion before God, even though they, they did not have the law of God, that the religious are just as guilty because they condemn themselves in that they judge people. Right? We talked a little bit last week about how the, the religious and the non-religious tend to judge people and how that kind of reveals that, that we are guilty of sin. But the point that Paul is making, and he made this point all the way back in verses 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for both the Jews and the Greeks. And then he starts in on saying that the Jews and the Greeks start from the same launching point. They're both guilty of sinning and rebelling against God and therefore are guilty of having his wrath showed against them. 
And so a number of questions can be raised as, as we're processing through this. And one of the things that's been interesting is people have come up and talked to me over the course of the last couple of weeks. It's like, Kevin, I don't really know which camp I fall in, right? As Paul's kind of laying out these, these points of saying like, yeah, I don't know if I fall in the more religious camp or the more non-religious camp. And as Paul said last week, that, that our works really kind of reveal who we are. They really reveal the, the heart of what we believe and what is to be known about us, right? And for those that, that fall into the non-religious camp, that, that their works deny a need for works in the first place. And so they, they struggle with this licentious idea that they don't need God, while the, the, the religious believe that their works will save them. And so they struggle with a form of works-based righteousness where they don't need God and they deny the need for God because they believe that they can earn his favor and love on their own. And the, the more important point, and this has kind of been the point I've been trying to drive home as people have come up and talked to me, is like, I don't really know what camp I sit in if I sit in the religious or not. It doesn't matter what camp you sit in. Because the point that Paul is making is that both camps have the same thing in common that they are rebellious towards God and his wrath is pointed at them. If you're sitting here this morning and you've been sitting through these sermons over the course of the last couple weeks and it's like, man, I find myself being non-religious at times. I find myself struggling with self-righteous religion at times. It doesn't really matter which particular side of that equation you struggle more with. The more important thing is to realize that both of those actions and lifestyles demonstrate and display a rebellion towards a need for God. And so as you probably guessed, Paul is not done driving home this point to either group. And and up until this point, he has simply kind of laid out to them that they are guilty, deserving of God's wrath. But Paul's going to anticipate a few more objections that are going to be raised by the points that he's making. Right? Because he started off with this idea of, hey, you are guilty because when you look at creation, you have denied the existence of God and denied worshiping him. And then he moves over to this concept of, you know, like the beginning kind of arguments of like a a conscience and a moral law, saying that if we are going to judge people based upon their actions, we are therefore condemning ourselves because the very thing we judge people for, we transgress and do. Right, how many of you guys have ever judged somebody for being angry and yet have never been angry yourselves? Right, not one hand is going up in this room, right? Because we are quick to judge right, the sin of others, but quick to excuse our own. And Paul's point is, is if you've ever judged somebody, whether you're religious or non-religious, you are guilty because you are proving that God in some way has placed on your heart a basic understanding of what right and wrong is. And you're transgressing that standard. And so if Paul's point last week was that humans will be judged based on the basis of their works, it raises a number of questions and objections from his opponents. And those that might be reading this letter and have cause for concern to deny what he's saying. And I want to start with this one, because this is kind of a big one. Paul has been saying that if you judge people, right, God is going to hold you guilty as well for what you judge people for. And so this common question that would kind of come up, because I talked last week that, that he was moving from talking about non-religious people to moving into a discussion of more of like what the religious Jews would have been struggling with, 
right? A common objection for the non-religious that would be reading this portion of the letter would be like, well, how can people be judged according to God's standard if they do not know it? Like, how could, how could God hold me guilty of being sinful if I never really knew from God's law what sin was in the first place? And the other objection that's going to kind of be raised up is going to be raised up by the religious side, which they're going to be able to say, hey, wait a minute. If, if, if the non-religious people can say, like, hey, they shouldn't be held guilty because they never had the law of God and they never knew God's commands towards them, what advantage is it to then grow up in a religious home? Is, is there an advantage in some way to, to grow up knowing the law of God as opposed to not knowing it? And Paul's going to attempt to kind of answer both of those questions, starting in verse 12, but really he's going to be answering those questions throughout the remainder of chapter 2 and even into chapter 3. Okay, so look at verses 12 and 13 with me, because we have a lot to kind of try to like wade through and unpack this morning, even though there's very few verses. Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now if you remember how our text finished last week, right? look at what verse 11 says. It says, For God shows no partiality. And the point that Paul is making in verse 11 is that it doesn't matter if you're Jew, Greek, or some other culture, right, that when God judges, he judges on the basis of our works. And that it doesn't matter if you grew up religious or non-religious, your works are going to display that you are guilty of sin and rebellion. God does not play favorites, that the whole world is guilty of sin and transgression. And this would be... This would be hard for specifically the more religious audience that's reading this letter to hear, right? Especially if you grew up culturally Jewish, you were told over the course of time that you were superior culturally to the rest of the world because you knew who the true God was. And that if you grew up Jewish, most of the time you would avoid having relationships with anybody that was not culturally Jewish because it was sinful to do so because you were so much superior to everyone else. And so imagine you're reading this letter and you've been told you're a good Jewish boy or girl and you've, you've been doing what you're supposed to be doing, you've been following the law, you've been doing all these things over the course of the time, you start reading this letter and Paul's like, if you've ever judged anybody and then committed that same sin, you're guilty before God, deserving of his wrath. And then he gets to verse 11 and says, because God shows no partiality, he doesn't care if you're Jewish or not. Imagine what's going to be running through your mind at this point. You're like, what, was I lied to my entire life? Right? And the point I was kind of trying to make last week to many of you guys in this room is that the cultural Judaism of the first century when Jesus is walking around on the earth can be compared a lot to cultural Christianity in the South. That you think, oh, I grew up in the church, mom and dad knew God, grandpa was a pastor, right? You start talking about all these things and this cultural heritage of Christianity and you think that that's what's going to justify you before God. Right, I always loved, like, one of my favorite things, like, when we'd be doing evangelism on campus, is I remember one time in particular, 
I was on the campus of James Madison University where I went to school, and I was talking to this guy, and I'm like, you know, I started talking to him, he's like, oh, you go to church? What kind of church you go to? And we start talking about that, and I was like, well, so what about you? Do you, like, are, like, do you have any spiritual beliefs? He's like, well, I don't really go to church, but, but I, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven. I'm like, oh, cool, like, how do you do that? He's like, well, my grandma was Catholic, and she taught Sunday school. I was like, oh, it's in the blood. You're like that, you know, I didn't, I wasn't aware that that happened. And so, I, you know, I started, like, trying to engage him. I was like, well, do you, like, do you even believe in God? He's like, well, you know, like, you know, kind of, and he starts like explaining this really obscure view of who God is and what's going on. I was like, well, what about Jesus? And he's like, oh, you know, he was this really good moral teacher, and he did all these really great things, and, you know, I think he was like a good political example for us. And I'm like, dude, I hate to break it to you, but you're not a Christian. Because what Jesus teaches about himself is that he's God's son in the flesh who gave himself willingly for our sin and died for us. He's not just some political leader. He's, he's God and king and Lord. That, that's what the Bible teaches us, right? And this is where this like cultural idea and allowing these kinds of things to kind of dictate our beliefs creates so much issues, and Paul very much so knows this. And so when he gets to verse 12, he's like, God does not show favoritism to any culture, people, or group when it comes to his judgment, the fact that you grew up in the South, in the United States, will give you no more free pass than if you grew up in the jungles of the Amazon and never read a Bible. That if, if you stand before God as a sinner and rebellious, you will be judged the same as anyone else, is the point that Paul is making. And he says that those who sin under the law will be judged by the law, and that those who sin without the law will perish without the law, but the outcome is the same for both sides, that we are guilty of cosmic treason, and that God is just and will judge those who are guilty. See, Paul is anticipating pushback on both sides trying to excuse their sin. From the non-religious, he anticipates we didn't know any better. And from the religious, he anticipates we're not as bad as the other side. And Paul's response to both parties is, you're both guilty and you both stand condemned before God. And so the first kind of like objection he's going to address is the Jewish religious pushback. Right? So this question. Well, would it be better than to not know the law? Right, because if, I, if I'm guilty and judged by the law, and even though I follow about 90% of it, would it be better than to have just grown up without the law? Like, what, what advantage is there to knowing the law? And look at what Paul says in verse 13. He says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now that's actually really important. It kind of just sounds like this like, kind of cool statement that Paul makes, but there's actually a ton of information being put in there, right? Paul's saying, like, look, knowing the law should not be considered a disadvantage for you if you grew up religious. Knowing what right and wrong is should not be considered a disadvantage by you. You should not consider yourself more condemned and more guilty and more unlucky because you grew up in a religious home, right? What I'm talking about here is if you've heard the law, but you don't follow it, 
right? Because much of what we see being kind of thrown around in first, the first century AD by the Jews was, was the guy on the street corner, right? There's one guy standing there, and Jesus is using them as his example for praying, and there's one guy on the street corner who's prostrated before God and saying, confessing all of his sin and saying, God, I have nothing. Please show your mercy and your forgiveness towards me. And then you have the Pharisee standing on the street corner who's banging his chest saying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that man. And the real problem is that Paul's kind of trying to lay out before us is we are way too easy on ourselves if we know the law. That we look at it and we say, I do a pretty good job of following this. I'm okay, right? That, that hey, I keep about 90% of God's laws and commands. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. And we reduce God's holiness and God's standard down to something that can be attained by mere men. And Paul's like, look, God's law is not a disadvantage to you. It reveals the truth of who God is to you and how you're supposed to live. It's helpful. Let me share with you from Galatians chapter 3 the proper way to view the law. Right, look at Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to read verse 24 to you. Right, we just studied this a couple months ago, so this may be familiar to a few of you guys in here. Right, look at what he says. He says, so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Right? If you have a different translation, some translations won't say guardian, it'll use the word tutor, right? And so what Paul kind of lays out to the Galatians is, hey, look, God gave the law to you and I, not so that it might justify us, not so that we could live it out perfectly and be declared righteous in God's eyes, but that the law was given to us so that it might reveal to us our sinfulness, the way if you are a student and you're not doing it well in a class, you might get a tutor so that that tutor can do what? Reveal to you the information that you don't know. Right? As I said earlier, many of us are easiest on ourselves when it comes to our own sinfulness and our own actions, our own pride, the things that we struggle with. And the point of the law is that you can't deny it. Therefore, if you read it, you're like, and you read something like, you know, if, I, if I'm reading through uh, Matthew chapter 5 and 6, right, and, I, and I've read the Old Testament in the past that says, do not commit murder, and I'm like, man, I've never committed murder. I'm good to go on that one. And then Jesus says, if you've ever been angry with a brother or sister in your heart, you are guilty of murder. God is using that to reveal to me that this is much deeper than just the actions, but the heart. And that I'm guilty of rebellion towards God's design and what he might have for me. And so Paul is in effect saying, like, hearing the law is of no real advantage to anybody if they don't listen to it in regards to righteousness. The only path to being right with God, if you have heard the law apart from Christ, is to then obey it fully. Can anyone honestly sit here and say that they've kept the law perfectly? Right? You obeyed your parents fully and honored them all the time? Have you always been a good friend? Have you never stolen? Have you always told the truth? In the 11 years now that I've been in ministry and been doing evangelism and talking to 
probably a couple thousand people who would not profess faith in Jesus. I have yet to meet one person who thinks that they are perfect. Because we all innately know that that's not the case. We don't even meet our own standard. And Paul's point, going all the way back to even what he said in verse one of chapter two, you judge people based on what you know from the law, but you break those very same laws so you will be judged by it. And so the point he's kind of trying to make to the religious is like, don't view the law as a curse, but don't look at it for salvation either. That God's word to you has some very specific purposes. That's meant to reveal to you the depth of your sinfulness so you would realize your need for God's mercy, not for your own power and glory. And that if you self-righteously seek in some way to perform on your own, you will inevitably be found guilty before God because you cannot make yourself righteous. Now, he's also going to anticipate the objection of the Gentiles who are going to say, well, we don't know the law. How can we be judged according to that standard if we don't know it exists? Because remember what he said in verse 12. It says, you will perish without the law even though they don't maybe even necessarily know the full weight of their sin, how can this be just? So look what he's gonna say in verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So he says, Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. This is kind of a confusing statement, right? Because we need to kind of understand, okay, who specifically is Paul addressing when he makes that statement? Who are the Gentiles that he's talking about here in verses 14 and 15? Okay, so Tim Keller lists three possible explanations for this, and I want to kind of go through them real quick and explain them to you, and then, and then kind of explain to you why I think the, the last option is, is the one that Paul is most likely addressing, okay? So when he mentions Gentiles there in verses 14 and 15, one possible group that he's addressing is Gentiles who obey the law without ever having heard of Jesus Christ, are saved by their works outside of Christ. Right? We could interpret verse 14 and 15 that way, right? Because he says this, right? Those Gentiles do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they not have the law. So it's like, hey, look, they're being obedient to the law, right? They're, they're, they're fulfilling the law. They're being doers of the law, even though they've never heard it. Okay, now there's a, there's a problem with this, right? Because if this is what Paul is saying, one, he's directly contradicting what he said in verses 16 and 17, right, about the need for the gospel, Right? We can also go back to, to Acts chapter 4, verse 10 and 12. Let me read that to you real quick. This is, this is uh, Peter and John before the council. Look at what they have to say. They, they're, they're talking to the religious leaders after they've been arrested, and look at what they say. Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, 
which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what they're saying is, is that no man can stand before God and be declared righteous on the basis of his own works, that the only way someone can be saved is how? Through the works of Jesus Christ. That that, that is how the, the gospel is wrapped up. And so it's doubtful then that Paul would present a group of people here that could be saved outside of the work of Christ. So then, that then leads us to, okay, maybe there's another option of who Paul's talking to. And that would be Gentiles within the church who have already been converted to Christianity. Are they the ones who didn't have the law but now obey it because it's written on their hearts? Okay? And and even though they didn't know the law, maybe verbally or intellectually, that once they became followers of Jesus, the law was then written on their hearts. Now it's hard to imagine this would be who Paul is talking about for two reasons. Early Christians would have had the scriptures shared to exp- and explained to them. Right? If you understand and you read any of the New Testament, whenever you see the, the disciples and the apostles dealing with the early church, they quote scripture consistently. And so the early converts to Christianity would have had the Old Testament there for them and for their reading, for their ability to be, you know, taught and to learn from it. It would also be strange that if you understand starting in about verse 18, everything that Paul has been talking about in Romans has been about judgment and those who are underneath judgment. So it would be strange for him to all of a sudden start shifting his audience to those who are already saved. And you notice if you continue to read chapter 2 that he continues to talk about the judgment of God being poured out towards those who don't know Christ. So it would be weird for him to then stick two verses in here that change his audience. So the third option, and this is, this is what I believe Paul is trying to say and who he's addressing here. He's answering the objection of non-Christian Gentiles of how they can be judged by a standard they didn't know exists. And Paul's point to them, if you read verses 14 and 15 closely, is this. God's law is innately known by the world and all of mankind. It says in verse 14 that those who don't know the law still often do what the law requires, and it is a law unto themselves. And his point is more so this, that they don't only do the right thing, but they believe that it's the right thing. And that is an important part to remember. There would be no one that we could probably talk to if we went out and engaged in some conversations this, this afternoon. Whether we were engaging a Christian or a non-Christian, if we said a few things to them, hey, do you think murder is okay? I doubt you're going to find anyone that says, yeah, I think it's fine. If you walked up to someone and said, what are your thoughts on pedophilia? You're going to have a hard time finding someone that says, yeah, I believe that's okay. Right, that there is something innately written on the, lo- on the hearts of men and women by God making men and women his image and likeness that says to you and I, those things are just wrong. We shouldn't do that. There's got to be a better way. And Paul's saying here in verses 14 and 15 that Gentiles show and display that the work of the law is written on their hearts. C.S. Lewis tackles this idea in his book, Mere Christianity. 
And I went back and read the first section of the book this past week because he deals with the moral law, right, and the whole first section of that book. And I found so many quotes that I couldn't even pick one that I was going to use, so I would recommend going and reading that book. That's my suggestion to you this morning. That, that, that entire first section is C.S. Lewis just trying to tackle this idea of um, moral relativity. And his entire point throughout that entire, entire you know, first couple chapters is that mankind is quick to be morally ambiguous when it comes to their own sinfulness, but when it comes to the sinfulness of others, they're quick to have a standard. And that standard displays that God has given a moral law and written it on our hearts in some way, shape, or form. And so Paul's saying, look, when humans who have no idea who God is do the right things because they believe it's the right thing to do, they are proving God's existence and that there is a standard out there. There can be no such thing as right or wrong if there is no moral lawgiver. Think, think about that for a second, right? I'm, I'm leaving just scripture here for a second and I'm becoming philosophical, but I want you guys to understand this. No one can claim that there is a standard of right and wrong unless that standard is given by a higher power. This is the problem with much of the moral relativistic arguments that you hear people make, especially in a city like ours that tends to lean more liberally in this arena. Right, if you have someone tell me, tell you that there is no standard for right and wrong, one, why do they get to derive that standard? And two, where does a standard then come from? And what you'll often hear from people is human beings collectively decide what that standard is. Now, I'll ask you guys this. I have my own thoughts on this. How often do human beings agree in a group on anything? Very, very, very rarely. Right? Like, I would imagine this. If I told you, hey, I think that speeding through a school zone is bad. How many people agree with me? How many of you, if you were pulled over for speeding then in a school zone, would still think that that was a good law? At least you guys are honest. I appreciate that of you guys. Right? That this, that this becomes what we are. Like, you, by definition, when you start trying to define what good and evil is, are actually affirming what Scripture teaches about you. Remember what the serpent said to Eve in the garden? He said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what will be true of you? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Meaning that when human beings begin to start trying to set the standard, we're actually proving scripture to be true. Because we're, we are doing the exact transgression that the scripture said would occur all the way back in Genesis chapter three. And Paul is making this point, look, morality is not relative. And when it comes to practice, human beings will display that there is a standard written on their hearts. Let me share with you guys a story. Some of you guys have heard this story before. If you've heard it before, you can still laugh because it's a good one. Right, back in 2007, I was on campus and we were talking with this guy in the Health and Human Services building, which like had chemistry in it and you know, like pre-med people and all these, so there was a lot of really, really smart people and I always felt like I shouldn't be in that, 
particular building when we go in there. We were in there and we were inviting people to church and we got into a discussion with this, this, this um, sophomore. And as we're talking with him, he's like, you know, I grew up in the church, but I don't really believe in God anymore. He's like, you know, like there's, there's too much ambiguity and there's not enough agreement amongst the church. And he's like, and plus, you know, like it, who, can, who are we to say that, that Christians are the ones that are right because how can we judge that their morality is better than everyone else's? And I was like, well, what do you think about morality just in general? And he's like, well, I think it's relative. Like, you know, like, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, but we can't really try to judge one another's standards. And, and as I've shared before, when I shared this story, like, I was like, okay, I'm ready for this. Right? I've, met, I've read Mere Christianity. You know, I've, I've listened to Robbie Zacharias. I've been listening to all these, but I'm ready to, like, get into this, like, heavy debate with this guy. And so I just go for it. I start talking to him, start trying to pick holes in his worldview or whatever else. He's like, nah, like, I'm telling you, like, you know, that's your standard, and it's good for you, but it's not good for me, so it doesn't work. And so I was like, and so I said to him, I was like, so you, you, you basically think we shouldn't hold anybody to a standard that, that we don't hold to? And he's like, yeah. And so I'm standing there with my pastor, and I don't know why my pastor let me ramble for about 15 minutes with this guy, but he's just, you know, he's letting us just talk back and forth. My pastor goes, well, it was great to meet you, you know, and we got to go. And he just walks over and picks up the kid's laptop and walks off. And like, I'm still standing there because I had no idea he was going to do this. Right, and I see the guy stand there for a second, and like, my pastor literally walks out the building because the doors were about 20 feet from us. And the guy looks at me and goes, is he leaving? I was like, I think he just stole your laptop, dude. And the guy's like, why'd he do that? And then it hit, right? And as I walked out with him, because he ran to chase my pastor down to get his MacBook back, right, my pastor goes, oh, you, well, I just thought I could take this. And I was like, well, that's, that's my laptop. He's like, yeah, but, you know, morality is relative. It's yours, but it's mine now. I've decided that. And the guy's like, well, I really like it back. He's like, I, I'm not interested in giving it back to you. And you could see on the guy's face the light bulb click on. Because talking about morality is relative. When you're talking about it from a philosophical plane, it sounds really good. But when you put it into practice, guess what? It doesn't work. It's self-defeating. Because all of us innately inside of us, when we've been wrong, what do we want? We want justice. But if morality is relative, where is justice? It doesn't exist. Because there's no standard by which to judge people. And Paul is saying this. There is a standard, and whether you know it from the law or not, you know it in your heart to be true. I tell people this all the time. Like, my sister and I used to fight like crazy when we were kids. Right? And when I was really little, one of my first memories is a time where we were bickering back and forth, and I hit her, and she started crying. Now, my parents came down on me once they found out what had, gone, what, what had happened. Right? They disciplined me. But you know what? I didn't need to be disciplined. You want to know why? The moment I saw the reaction of my sister, I knew what I had done was wrong. Now, just because we know something is wrong doesn't mean we won't do it again. My sister and I fought many, many times after that. But I knew innately without someone explaining to me the ramifications of what I had done, that I had sinned. That what I had done was not right. And the point Paul is making is that all of us 
on our hearts have had this innately put in us by God because we bear his image and likeness. Therefore, we are without excuse and will be judged by the law. We're still guilty that there is no excuse that there are times when those without knowledge of the Bible will still do the right thing and believe that it is right. And because of that, we can know that we have a conscience even though we often suppress that truth to get what we want. So, so Paul's ultimate point is God is just in judging those who have the law and have not kept it, but he is also just in judging those without the law because they know it internally and have not kept it. And so he's just building. He's just building this argument more and more. We're without excuse. We are without excuse. We are without excuse. God is just and right and holy, and I am not. Whether I'm a Jew or a Greek, I stand guilty before the God of the universe. Now, there's been a lot to process over the course of the last two weeks in particular as we've been, you know, unpacking Romans chapter 2. Right, starting with, with Gentiles and unreligious people knowing that they're guilty because creation declares God's glory to them and because of the moral law, as we've seen before, that they worship creation rather than creator. Or if you find yourself relating with the more religious side, that they're guilty by their judgment and that the law reveals their sin to them. And one thing I want to kind of mention to you guys, I explained this back when we worked through the book of Rome, uh, Galatians. You guys need to have this proper understanding of the law because the biggest thing I see Christians struggling with even after 10, 15, 20, 30 years is when, when you know the law, you start trying to use the law to justify yourself, right? You, you, you start out, right, and you think that the gospel is the entry point into life with God, but then you see it as not being necessary anymore. And you start playing this game where it's like, okay, Jesus saved me from my sin. He died on the cross in my place. I believe in him. Okay, now I'm a son or a daughter of God. Okay, now I need to obey, and like, yes, you obey because you'll, you'll find joy there, but you start viewing the law as something that you can then do after you become the Christ. And what we need to understand is that the law, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, is our tutor. Right? The example I gave you guys when we were studying the book of Galatians is that it's a, a, it's a diagnostic test. Right? Remember the example I shared with you guys? That my son Josiah, he's two and a half years old, he'll be three in December, he has epilepsy. Okay? And every time he has a seizure, we take him to the hospital and they hook him up to this machine that's called an EEG. Right? And he's got like all these wires hanging up from his head and he wears this big sock on his head. And you know, I hope and pray that he doesn't have any more because he doesn't do anything that you want him to do anymore. And so I know those things are coming off if we ever go into the hospital again. Right? And what the doctors are doing when they attach the EEG machine to his brain is they are reading the electrical output of his brain to determine whether or not he had a seizure. And they have determined over the course of these tests that yes, Josiah has epilepsy, he has seizures. Okay, now, what if I told you then, the doctor comes in to talk to Jackie and I was like, okay, we've, we've done the EEG, it's confirmed for us, Josiah has seizures. So we wanna start treatment. And I looked at him and said, okay, well let's just leave that thing connected. You know, the doctors would look at me like, well, you, you want to leave the EEG connected to his brain? It's like, yeah, let's just leave it connected all the time. Right, I want to I leave that thing connected all the time. I want it to be reading his brain waves all the time, right? That, that'll help fix him. What would you guys think of me? This guy's crazy. 
Like the, the point of the EEG machine is not to solve epilepsy, it's there to prove whether or not someone does have epilepsy. But that's what so many of us do with the law. The point of the law is to reveal your sinfulness, not save you from it. The point of the law is a diagnostic test to reveal to you that you are in rebellion and have transgressed against the God of the universe. That you are in sin and rebellion to him. And yet so many of us will run back to the law thinking, I can keep this. I can perform this. God will love me enough if I just do this thing. If I start having my quiet times like I'm supposed to. If I stop sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend. If I stop looking at pornography. If I stop lying. If I stop cheating. Right? You start listing all these things you're supposed to do that are good and right underneath the law. And you start using the law to try to justify yourself. You do something that the law was not intended to do in the first place. And yet you stand condemned because the law reveals to you your own sinfulness. So I want to finish up with this. Look at verse 16. Romans chapter 2. On that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He's just got done saying that men's consciences will either accuse them or excuse them, but then what does he ultimately say is going to happen? That Jesus Christ will judge our works. That verse right there, guys, verse 16 should do one of two things. It should leave you with great fear or it should leave you with great hope. Nothing else. Right, reading that verse right now this morning should do one of two things in you. You should read that verse and you should say to yourself, if I am trying to come to God, or if I'm even trying not to come to God at all, Paul is saying that on the final day I will stand before Jesus Christ to give an account of my life. I will come face to face with him. Jesus, the Savior of the world, will also be its judge. You should either stand there and say, do I I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? If I don't, if I'm in some way either licentiously denying God or if I'm legalistically trying to be self-righteous, I stand condemned before him. Or it should give you great hope because you're gonna stand before him and you're gonna say, Lord, I find my righteousness in you and you alone. It's because of you, my judge, that I am declared justified. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus as some sort of religious teacher, one who said good things, he's a nice dude, he's a political martyr, he's your homeboy, whatever you want to call him? The scriptures say that he is so much more than that. Paul has shown that your works on that final day will display one thing, guilty. That's it. There's no other verdict. There's not a continuance. There's not guilty by reason of insanity. Guilty. 
Now, I've been asked a few times over the last several weeks, Kevin, why is every talk so focused on judgment? It's depressing. All right, sorry, you haven't been getting your Hallmark moment here on Sunday mornings. And I would say two things to you, if that's how you've been feeling over the course of the last couple of weeks, or you're sitting here this morning, it's like, this guy's rough. One, Scripture addresses it, and so we need to. We don't develop our own opinions. We don't get to set our own standards about how God is or who he is. We let God's word do that for us. But number two, I would say this, because here's the thing. When I read these verses, I don't feel depressed. I don't, I don't feel anxious. I don't, I don't feel upset. I don't feel woeful. And I don't think you should either. Because here's the reality. If you have a proper understanding of your own sinfulness, Jesus is that much more beautiful to you. The, one of the ways I can encourage you and fan the flames of your faith is to put to death your self-dependence and self-reliance. Right, when, I, when I get up here on a Sunday morning, I'm not here to make you feel better about yourself. I'm here to help you put yourself to death so that you might live to Christ and worship and glorify Him. If you understand more fully the depth of your own sinfulness, how much beautiful then, more beautiful, is knowing that the Father sent His only Son to secure for you the forgiveness of sin and that God's just Wrath was poured out not on you, but the Son, because the Son willingly gave himself for you. And that you might be known as adopted as a son of God, with God's wrath satisfied. I want you to know the good news. I want you to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I want you to be able to say that Jesus is my, my king, he's my friend, he, he died for me, but I also want you to know the reality of who you really are. You're a sinner who brings nothing to the table in your relationship with the, the Father. Nothing. Whose works, your works, my works, do nothing but declare guilty before God. Because if you understand that, in a more profound and real way, it will cause you to worship him. Go with me to Luke chapter seven. That's where we're gonna finish today. Starting in verse 41. I think it ties directly into what we're saying right here about the importance of knowing our own sinfulness and what God has done for us. Look at verse 41. Jesus has been sitting down and there's been a, a, a woman that's been anointing his feet with oil and there's a Pharisee there that's not excited that Jesus is hanging out with sinners and allowing himself to be touched by her. And look at what he says. He shares this example. He says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon the Pharisee he's talking to said this, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Guys, all of us have been forgiven much. That, that's the reality. If you call yourself in here this morning a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the woman in this story. And the reason we share the bad news is so that you might realize the depth of your own sinfulness so you might see the greatness of the mercy of your Savior. As we take communion this morning, right, when we take communion, what we're doing every week at Aletheia when we take communion is we are saying that we identify that salvation, that forgiveness of sins has been purchased by Jesus Christ pouring out his flesh and blood on our behalf on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God. And that through his resurrection, right, he has purchased that salvation for us. Right, that, that's what we're identifying with. So if you're, if you're here this morning and you were invited to church and you're not a Christian, and you're like, I've been thinking about this, but I'm not, I would ask that you not take communion, right, because communion represents something important in the life of a Christian, Right? It's their way of worshiping, saying, God, thank you for what you've done for us. Jesus, thank you that you gave your life for my sins so that when I stand before Christ on the day of judgment and I give an account of my works, I'm able to say, Lord, my, my works are nothing. I'm deserving of wrath and condemnation, and yet I know this. Jesus Christ died for my sins and has credited me his righteousness. That I have nothing to offer, but I offer you the life of Christ. And that as you take communion, you don't sit there and wallow in pity over your own sin, but you instead rejoice in Christ because of what he's done for you. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you can't relate with that. We've got people all over this room who would love to talk to you about what God has done in their lives, but I would ask that you not take communion. If you're a Christian here this morning, God asks something different of you. He says if you have someone in this room that you have some sort of, of reconciliation that needs to take place, that you would do that before you come to the table and take communion. That you would focus on reconciliation and confession and repentance of sin. And then if you can do that and you can search your own heart and then come up here and take communion with a clear conscience, thankful for what Christ has done you, that you would come up and you would worship him and do so. Guys, we're going to continue this theme over the next couple of weeks of, of looking at the sinfulness of man. And I know that it's maybe not the first thing we want to do, but it's what we need to do. Right? We need to be honest and real with ourselves about who we really are so that God can be as big as he really is. The only one who could save us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you tell us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. Lord, you know that I probably, like many people in this room this morning, want to be told how great I am. I want to be 
told how awesome I am, how, what a great father I am, what a great husband I am, what a great friend I am, what a great guy I am. And the reality is, is I'm not. That's why you say in verse 15 that even the secrets will be judged by Christ. And yet, Lord, as I stand here, I'm hopeful because I know that through your Son purchased from me was a salvation that I could not earn on my own. That no amount of good works, that no amount of sound doctrine or good theology could ever declare me right in your eyes and yet your son came and lived according to the law, perfectly followed it and then died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of my sin and he instead exchanged and gave to me his righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Or may we be a people marked not by pride for our own performance, but by a sincere love and worship of Jesus Christ as our Savior and our King. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. And I ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.